of you were raised on Sesame Street or other similar entertaining shows. Uh, when our firstborn was about two, uh, he was really into trucks, lots of different kinds of trucks, trash trucks and fire trucks seemed to be uh, the winners most of the time. And so when we needed, um, I don't know how else to put it, when we needed a little bit of a break, we would turn on YouTube and show lots of fire trucks driving by. And there were lots of trash trucks picking up trash. And those things were endlessly entertaining to our two-year-old son. Then as he progressed in his tastes a little bit, we decided to try and, like, channel those interests that he had in, you know, public service or cleaning up or things like that. And we introduced him one Saturday morning. Clarissa had to go teach a class of some kind. And so I was home with Thomas, and I turned on This Old House, which is a magical show. And... uh, Introduce him to that, and it was his new fixation for quite a while, uh, to the point where probably a year or two later, he was still measuring everything in our house, and pretty accurately, everything was like 17 and three-fourths or whatever else, and, um, you know, getting it down to the, to the minute details of measuring, he would know every kind of tool, every kind of saw, every kind of blade you would need for different kinds of materials, and it was pretty interesting to watch, but one of the reasons that this old house is appealing to a lot of people is, and to our, you know, at that point, two-year-old son, and later on, our other children appreciate it a little bit as well. But the reason it's appealing to any of us is because we like seeing things that are broken down getting fixed. This is why there is an entire cable channel called HGTV, and people just watch show after show of people fixing up old houses and making them beautiful. And there is something, you know entertaining, obviously, to it, the fact that people like to watch it and spend lots of time watching it. Um, There's something instructive about it as well. But why do you think, as you reflect on shows like This Old House, and if you've never seen it, you know, you can Google it, uh, or HGTV, I would probably stick with This Old House personally, but if you have to go look that up, that's fine. But why is it that you are interested in those types of shows, or that other people are interested in those types of shows? Because we like to see things that are broken down get fixed too. We like things that are in disrepair. We like seeing them become beautiful. And that's what our passage today is about. We're in Psalm 126. This is on page 485 if you're using a provided Bible. But those shows I just described typically show a beautiful transformation and also show people's reaction to those shows. And I would guess that if HGTV, let's roll with that one for a minute, if at the end of the restoration project the homeowner was less than impressed, that show didn't make the cut and never actually aired. Or they hired a different actor to pretend to be the homeowner and to show enthusiasm and tears of joy when they saw their restored home. But our passage today is talking about the theme of being restored, of the way that God takes something that's broken down and makes it beautiful. 
And we are in Psalm 126. I'll read the passage aloud. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This passage calls us to find true joy in God's restoring work. Find true joy in God's restoring work. We don't need to know all the details of the background of this psalm in order to see how useful it is for us, but I do think we can benefit from trying to situate this psalm in Israel's history a little bit. I think it's likely that this psalm was written after the exile. Some of the other ones we've read, maybe they were. I think this one almost definitely was. Uh, after the exile. And in case you're new to the Bible, uh, let me try to get you caught up briefly so you understand what I even mean by that. That may sound very unappealing to even have to think, I don't know what an exile is, and there's supposedly some major event here. Um, But the fact that this psalm was written after the exile, I think, in my opinion, and I believe that that would be uh, significant for us to understand this. So the people of God were created as a nation. This goes back to passages like Exodus 19. And as part of God creating them as a nation, he called them to be faithful, to obey him, to walk in all his ways. And he entered into a covenant with them. And as part of this covenant, God's call to these people to obey him, he said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. We saw this significantly about nine months ago in the book of Deuteronomy, when we studied that together. And what would be the results of those two choices? If you bless me, let me just lay out, or I'm sorry, if you obey me, the Lord said, let me lay out what these blessings will look like. This would be Deuteronomy 26, 27, that area. But if you disobey me, and the Lord said, and by the way, I know you're going to, because the Lord knows the future, he said, this is what's going to happen. And the list of blessings is like this long, and the list of cursings is like this long. (laughs) It's a lot longer. Uh, And so God's people disobeyed, as the Lord knew they would, as we know from our own human experience, like we disobey a lot too. This is not surprising to us to read that Israel disobeyed as well. But then God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He judged Israel. He did what um, he promised. And one of the ways that he described what the judgment would be like, would be you're going to be taken away by wicked people, taken into a land that you don't know. You're going to be taken out of the land that I've promised you and already given to you uh, at a certain point in Israel's history. And you're going to hate your life. Like, it's going to be miserable. Your loved ones are going to die of starvation. You're going to die of starvation. You're going to be going out in the olive fields and there's no olives on the tree. You're going to go out into your... You know, the the pens of sheep and all the sheep are gone because they've already all been eaten. There's going to be nothing left. There's going to be great judgment. And these people were dragged out of the land that God had promised to them and they were taken as captives or we could say as prisoners, as exiles in, in the land of Babylon for 70 years. And then providentially under the reign of a man named King Cyrus of Persia, 
the Lord beautifully, providentially, we could even say miraculously in some ways, brought his people back into their lands, and we could say he restored their fortunes. And that's what this psalm, I think, is talking about, is when we read in verse 1 here, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, I think it's when he brought the captives of Israel, that's what Zion means, the captives of Jerusalem, the captives of God's people, back into their land, this is what it was like. And so what this psalm is calling us to do, I believe, is to find true joy in God's restoring work. And you could ask, well, how do I find that joy? And I think the psalm naturally breaks into two sections because verse 1 talks about restoring and verse 4 talks about restoring. So I'm seeing those as the two major divisions here, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6. And I think verses 1 through 3 call us to find joy by reflecting on God's past restoring work. Find joy by, re- by reflecting on God's past restoring work. And then verses 4 through 6, which I'll repeat this in a few minutes, Verses 4 through 6 would tell us to find joy by anticipating his future restoring work. Anticipate God's future restoring work. So that's how this passage is laid out before us. Well, let's talk through verses 1 through 3 that we can find joy by reflecting on God's past restoring work. I already mentioned essentially what I think is the, the background of this psalm. The people of Zion, the people of Jerusalem, were overwhelmed by the fact that the Lord had brought them out of captivity or out of exile. And it was so good, it was almost like it was too good to be true. That's what I think the second line of this psalm is telling us. We were like those who dream. You ever had a dream you really wish you didn't wake up from? You like try whatever you can to make yourself go back to sleep because you were enjoying that dream so much? That's what they were like. We were like people whose lives couldn't get any better. That's what it's saying here in verse 1. Our lives were so good because the Lord restored us. So to restore something, again, just to be clear, as we talked about like with this old house or various shows on TV you can find, to restore something means to take something that's broken or in disrepair or at least in disuse and make it beautiful. Make it accomplish its original purpose. So when we got married, uh, Clarissa's extended family gave us a hope chest. I don't know too much about it. I think it's made out of cedar. It's still in our living room. But it had been in the family for a really long time, let's say 100 years. It had kind of been passed down from generation to generation. And before they gave it to us, someone fixed it up and kind of secured the, the wood and put a new coating of you know, stain on it and so forth and gave us this beautiful hope chest. And so that's where we keep our blankets and extra towels and things like that. Turns out to be a nice little piece in our living room. If nothing else, it's something we can talk about with people who come to our house. But that piece of wood needed to be restored. Maybe you have worked on restoring a kitchen or an entire house or a car or some small ornament that someone gave you, taking it and making it look beautiful after it had fallen into disrepair. That's what God had done for these people, and it caused them almost to weep with laughter. Did you notice that in verse 2? Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. So when you think about people shouting with joy, what comes to your mind? Maybe it's an older married couple finding out for the first time that they're going to be grandchildren and they weep with joy. 
Maybe it's you got a Christmas present that was something you never could have imagined you would have gotten. And you laughed with joy. You had shouts of joy. Maybe you can think of November of 2016 and something important happening in Chicago around that time in human history. Maybe you can think of this type of situation in... So for those who don't know, that's when the Cubs won the World Series. All right, so... uh, In World War II, there were Allied soldiers who were in Norway hiding out in a unheated, in the middle of winter in Norway, I'm just going to say, in an unheated kind of like shack, and they were starving. And so day after day, they would go out on their skis and go reindeer hunting. Unfortunately, it was really hard to catch reindeer and to hunt reindeer. And they also were trying to do all of this without getting caught by the Germans, which is why they're hiding in this shack in Norway, trying to sabotage the Germans' plans to create the first atomic bomb. Well, one day, one of the soldiers, the Allied soldiers, left that unheated shack and went out to go reindeer hunting on his skis, and he came back. And the other soldiers who were in the house there with him asked him, well, did you catch anything? And he was doing everything he could to suppress his smile. And he was just like, no, sorry, guys. But one of the guys caught. A, the bag was bloody that he was carrying. His backpack was bloody. And B, he couldn't quite say, no, I couldn't catch anything today with a straight face. And they said, you caught something, didn't you? And so they all enjoyed eating uncooked reindeer tongue together. So I thought that would really edify you today on this cold day. If you hadn't eaten in days or weeks, you probably would have enjoyed that as well. So all that to say, uh, these people celebrated with shouts of joy, just like you can think of times when you would have shouted with joy. What's also astonishing about this restoration work of God is not just the reaction that those beneficiaries of God's restoring work had, but the reaction of other people. Did you notice that in uh, verse 2, the second half of verse 2? They said, among the nations. Who are the nations? That's anybody outside of Israel. These are the people in Egypt. These are the people in Jordan. These are the people in Syria. And you can go on and on. People around Israel, what's going on over there? They're all celebrating. Something good must have happened. Oh, you know what's good happened? Their God, Yahweh, because that's why it's all in caps there. Yahweh, their true God, what they say is the true God, has done great things for them. That's the outsider's perspective looking at God's people. How did they ascertain that the Lord had done great things for them? I think it probably has something to do with the fact that these people, as they walked back to their homeland out of exile, were weeping with laughter. They were, their tongues were loosed with shouts of joy. They were probably singing songs, maybe some of these psalms that we've been studying recently, But it was by the way the people lived. It was by their facial uh, expressions. It was by the way they celebrated and they responded to the great things that God has done. So you have outsiders, the nations, maybe from a New Testament, like 1 John chapter 2 perspective, we would call it the world. Maybe we could just, the way we often refer to it, non-Christians or unbelievers. What are those people doing? They're seeing you. 
And they're looking at the way that you're living and the way that you think about God and the way you talk about God and the fact that you go to church on a day when the temperature is below zero. Why in the world do you do this? And the answer is in the first line of verse 3, or in verse 3 as a whole. Because the Lord has done great things for us. We don't need non-Christians to tell us that God has done great things for us, as we see in verse 2. We would say, yeah, you got it. That's exactly right. We are glad. We actually had this verse, verse 3 on the front of our program when we got married. Because we thought, the Lord has done great things for us by bringing us together. So we're glad. We're very thankful that God has done great things. And so as you step back and you just reflect on the landscape of your life, yeah, there have been some highs and some lows. But has the Lord done anything for you that makes you shout for joy? That makes you weep with praise? That makes you be filled, have your mouth be filled with laughter? That makes you say, man, it's like I'm living a dream when I think about what God has done for me. And if you can't think of anything that God has done for you that would elicit that kind of praise, I would just ask you, do you actually consider yourself a Christian? If the answer is no, we would invite you to repent of your unbelief in God and of the ways that you have rebelled against Him and believe that Jesus is the only one who can forgive you of the wicked ways that you have rebelled against God. But if you are a Christian, the number one reason you have to have a mouth filled with laughter and a tongue shouting songs of joy is that the Lord has restored you through Jesus Christ, through your salvation. That's what you celebrate. That's what you sing about. So when I say that you need to reflect on God's past restoring work, which is what Israel's doing here, when the Lord in the past restored the fortunes of Zion, what I'm saying is you need to reflect on the fact that the Lord has given you spiritual life at all. And then you can also think about You know, when I got saved, the Lord didn't take away all my inclinations to sin. And actually, now that I think about it, decades later, He still hasn't taken away my inclinations to sin. But He has been patient toward me. And He has given me a little bit of progress in fighting sin. If you're a Christian, you can probably see ways that the Lord has helped you fight sin in new ways. But what he's doing, what I, the reason I say all that is, the Lord takes more joy in restoring your heart rather than replacing your heart. Like you could go out and you could buy a new car, a 2024 car. Those exist, I've heard. Or you could go out and buy a 1960s car and fix it up. And what I'm saying is that the Lord is more honored in taking something old and broken apart and making it new and beautiful than just scrapping the whole thing and starting over again, which is what he's doing in each of our hearts as Christians. He's renovating you from the inside out because he gets more glory by you fighting your sin and by you learning to trust the Lord in new ways and enduring and suffering and persevering and doing good works. And so I'm just asking you to reflect on God's past restoring work, the ways that he has changed you, the fact that he has changed you at all through the gospel. The Lord talks about the fact that he restores us elsewhere in the scriptures. You can think even just of Psalm 23, verse 3. He restores my soul. 
leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He continues to do that for you. He continues to restore you and renovate your soul through spiritual growth. We call it sanctification after you have been justified, which is after he has declared you righteous. He made you new through conversion. And now he's continuing to restore you. And this psalm is urging you to think about the fact that the Lord has done great things for you. Verses 4 through 6 call us to anticipate his future restoring work. So we're essentially seeing that this psalm calls us to find true joy in God's restoring work. You do that by looking at the restoring work he's already done, but then you turn around and you look in the other direction, you look forward to the restoring work he's going to do. In verses 4 through 6, do this in the form of a prayer, and then in two illustrations of what it would look like for the Lord to answer that prayer. So let's see what the prayer itself is. It's very simple. It's the first line of verse 4, restore our fortunes, or bring us out of captivity again, Lord. And here's what it's going to look like when you do that. It will be like streams in the Negev. Sweet, super helpful. None of us have ever been to the Negev before. The Negev just means the desert. It just means like the dry part of Israel where nobody could possibly live because it's so dry, because nothing grows there. But once in a while, so some parts of, of that desert region of Israel get like an inch of rain per year. Not a lot. Not a lot's going to grow there. But some parts of that desert region get maybe up to eight inches, but either way, when it rains heavily, sometimes overnight, wildflowers will bloom out of the ground. Little plants will emerge that have been hiding under the sand all along, and now the rain has caused them to spring. And you can watch time-lapse videos of these kinds of things. You can just search something like streams in the desert time-lapse on YouTube, and you'll find beautiful things like this. And you'll notice what the psalmist has in mind when he says this. Like, Overnight, there is visible evidence that God has blessed us. We look forward to that. That's part of what, the, what he means by streams in the desert. I think what he also means by that is those streams, it takes a lot of water. It takes a lot of rain for streams to develop. Like if it's just a passing shower, it'll probably mat the dust down, but that's about it. But when it pours and pours and pours for days on end, Now you have streams in the desert, and now you see powerful growth. And so I think there's some sense in which this is a prayer. Like, Lord, do a lot for us. Like, don't just make it beautiful. There's that. But do it in a hurry and do it in excess. So there's that illustration. There's streams in the desert. The Negev is just the southern region of of the desert of Israel. The second illustration is that you have people who are going out in that desert carrying a heavy bag of Let's just say grass seed. All right. I thought about bringing a bag of grass seed in, but that would have meant going to my garage and it's cold in there. So I uh, did not bring one in, but just picture a big heavy bag draped over your shoulder and you're going out and you're just throwing seed in a desert. It's brown. Why in the world am I even doing this? Is probably the question you would be asking. But you keep throwing and you're crying while you're throwing these seeds because this seems pointless. This seems like this could never possibly amount to anything. But then you reap with shouts of joy. 
you come away and you're like those guys who were celebrating, we got our reindeer. We're actually going to eat again. We're actually going to survive another day. The illustration is just expanded, basically, in verse 6. He who goes out weeping, that's the person in verse 5 who's sowing in tears. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. That's the third time shouts of joy have been talked about. Verse 5, but also back up in verse 2 as well. Shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. No longer does he have a heavy bag of seeds Carried over, carrying, that he's carrying over his shoulder. Now he's carrying sheaves on his shoulder. Heavy evidences that the Lord has caused streams to flow in the desert. Everything is growing beautifully and there's so much I can't possibly carry it all at one time. The Lord has blessed us so vividly, so powerfully. And so what this second half of the psalm is calling us to do is to anticipate God's future restoring work. But I think there's also a lesson for us to be learned, kind of as an aside, if we want to put it that way, about how God accomplishes his work. And I think it's important for us to remember that God uses people to do his work. He's not ashamed of that. He actually planned it that way, created it that way, built it that way. To use sowers who are going to throw seed in the ground, knowing that you may never actually be the one that gathers and does the reaping yourself. You may be just a sower, and somebody else might be the one who comes along and waters, and someone else might be the one that comes along and sees the increase. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, Paul scattered, I think is the way he put it, and Apollos watered, but God gets the increase. And so when we are ministering to one another, a lot of times what we're doing is throwing seeds of the word of God out into the ground, sometimes with tears because we see no visible fruit. You think about someone, a missionary like Adoniram Judson, who went, I believe, from from England to Burma, which is now called Myanmar, so Southeast Asia. And he went and he moved there, and if I recall correctly, I think his entire family died in the first couple of years or so that he was there. And I know, because I did some research on this part, he didn't see a single conversion for the first six years that he was there. Six, I've been here for four years. Four years has actually gone by very quickly here. Um, but it's still four years. I mean, it's still like, you can just mark it by the growth of my children or those types of things. Time adds up. This was six years before you see any fruit in a place where the gospel was brand new, and he's going and he's just throwing seeds in the ground over and over and over again. And he probably was having to come to grips with the fact that I may go to my grave like the rest of my family has before I see anybody respond in faith and repentance to this. Turns out lots of people eventually did, and the gospel is continuing to go forward in Myanmar, though certainly with its ups and downs. But it started with a guy who was willing to throw seeds in the ground even though he wasn't sure if he'd ever see the results. And I just want to encourage you, as someone who is waiting for the Lord to bring the streams in the desert, to keep throwing the seeds in the ground. And I think we need to do that as individuals and also as a congregation. So for us as individuals, that means things like keep doing the habits of grace. Reading your Bible every day, or several times a week even, 
or even just for a while on a weekend, because that's the only time you possibly can around your busy schedule. That's kind of like lifting weights. It's super good to do, but you're probably not going to see very visible results very quickly. You keep doing it anyway, though. You're not doing it just for the visible results of lifting weights or eating healthfully. It's good to do that, too. It's a lot more satisfying, at least according to the wrapper, to eat a Snickers bar. But it's probably a whole lot better for you to eat a salad. But if you are willing to keep doing the hard work of lifting weights, or in this case, reading your Bible and going to church and having fellowship with other Christians, that will bring about spiritual growth, that will bring about spiritual fruit and visible progress by the Lord's grace over time. And so I just want to encourage you to continue to sow seeds individually. And that means throwing gospel seeds out when you talk with your coworkers and when you talk to family members and when you meet new people at the grocery store. We also sow together as a church. And so this is why we continue to support missions partners all over the country and all over the world because we think that there's something about the way that God has programmed the world so that when we partner with other people to throw seeds in the ground, in some strange, beautiful way, we see the progress of that and, and see the Lord's encouragement in that as well. And in some way participate in the fruit that comes from those seeds, even though we may not see them in this lifetime. Part of this sowing and reaping, though, is the reality that progress is often slow and sometimes we don't see the visible fruit. And so I just counseled a man in another state this past week, just a few days ago, about the reality that he may never actually see progress in his marriage. He's in a terrible marriage scenario. And you can just flesh that out for a couple seconds in your mind of what that would even mean. But I told him, you probably are going to have to wait until you are in the presence of the Lord before you ever understand what he was taking you through and why he allowed this and why this was such a terrible relationship for you and so forth. But what I'm saying is that your problems may not go away in this life. And I think that part, maybe your marriage is awesome, but maybe there's something else in your life where you're thinking, like, this problem, it sure does not seem to be passing me by. Sure, it would be nice for it to. And so maybe this sowing and reaping part reminds us that maybe my job isn't to see the reaping. Maybe that's for the next life. Maybe when we think about anticipating God's future restoring work, what we really have in mind is something like Revelation 21, 3 and 4. That the Lord himself is making all things new. And that one day he will wipe away all of our tears And he will take away all of our sicknesses and mend all of our broken relationships and take away our inclinations to sin. But he does all that on the last day, not today. The Lord had restored Israel. The Lord, uh, the people wanted further restoration. That's why they prayed this in verse 4. And we as the church living on this side of the cross continue to say, Lord, I thank you that Jesus gave up his life, came back to life, so that we could continue to participate in your kingdom work, throwing seeds in the ground and trusting you to accomplish your work. You don't know exactly how the end result will turn out when you throw seed in the ground. You can expect that if you put apple seeds in the ground, you're probably going to see 
apple trees, but you still don't know how long that's going to take or whether those trees will be fruitful or not. And it's similar to making a trade in sports. So I realize I use a lot of sports illustrations. For some of you, I'm very sorry because I know that turns you off. And for others, you're like, hey, I can listen again. But I'll just use this, this, uh, this example. About uh, 15 years ago, the Seattle Seahawks traded away two minor draft picks to the Buffalo Bills. For a running back who, to that point, had been very unsuccessful, he had been a first-round draft pick. His name was Marshawn Lynch. He was basically a waste of time on the Buffalo Bills. So the Seahawks said, you know what, let's just trade these two future picks, one this coming year and one the year after that. They're late in the draft. Nothing's probably going to come of it. They traded for Marshawn Lynch. He's probably going to be in the Hall of Fame in a couple years. He was unbelievable. They gave him a, a nickname that just showed how powerful he was. They called him Beast Mode because he just plowed people over. And you can watch videos of that on YouTube as well. I just keep telling you to go to watch YouTube. That's probably not what we should be talking about. But nonetheless, that trade worked out super well for the Seattle Seahawks. Like That was one of their shining moments as a franchise. Do trades always work out that way? You don't have to look at Seattle to get the answer to that question. But that's part of the deal. You don't quite know how it's going to turn out. And so, even as Christians, we walk by faith. We throw seeds in the ground, and we know that the Lord is good and sovereign. He knows the future. He will bring it to his designed ends. And so, as we sow, we have faith in the Lord's mercy, that he wants to hear your praise for his past restoring work, And he wants to hear your prayer for future restoring work. And he wants to see one of the fruits of spiritual growth in our lives is the fact that we even have patience in the first place. That we can say, Lord, this is what I'm hoping for, but I may not ever see it. But I know you're going to give me what I need, even if it's not what I want. And even if I don't see it from your perspective yet. May our true joy in life be found not in trades going well or draft picks working out, or in achieving a comfortable retirement, our true joy in life is found in God's restoring work, particularly the restoring work that he accomplishes through Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord, we need this psalm. We need the message of this psalm because we are so quick to look just at the immediate results in our lives. But we know that even the restoring work you did for your people Israel was 70 years in the making. And the further restoring work of them restoring Jerusalem and waiting for the Messiah and so forth was many, many more years in the making. And the final restoring work is still yet to come for us. And so, Lord, may we be patient sowers. And may we be people who delight to praise you, so that unbelievers will look at us and say, wow, the Lord must have done something great for them. Truly, Lord, you have done great things for us, and so we are glad. And we especially give you thanks today for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.